This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. We often hear about how the ringgit is becoming weaker or sometimes stronger when compared to other currencies. For example, people often talk about how at one point, the ringgit to the Singapore dollar was one to one. But over the years, the Singapore dollar is now more than three ringgit. One Singapore dollar is more than three ringgit. More commonly, we often discuss the ringgit in relation to the US dollar. But how does any of this work exactly? I'm Darshan Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist and a professor at the Malaysian University of Science and Technology. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing good as well. It's been a while since I have you on, had you on the show. So let's start from just trying to understand what currencies exactly are. How would you define currency and what is its function in the global economy? Okay, I think the simplest way to understand currency is that in an economics context is that it's money. Right. <laughs> and the reason that it's called currency is that you can use it immediately. Right. So that we have many different forms of uh, money that can be used in different ways. But mm-hmm. sometimes, for example, if you if you put money into a, a, a fixed deposit or something like that, it's not necessarily immediately available to you. Right. So basically, currency is uh, any type of um, form of money that you can use immediately for products, services, buy, p- p- buying, selling, trading, investing immediately that's what it is well i mean clearly in in the domestic economy mm-hmm. anything that is acceptable um uh, for the payment of a debt or for payment for products or services can be considered currency but of course in the modern sense this is uh, notes and coins issued by uh, the bank in malaysia by bank negara and of course any way that you can make the transaction using notes and coins which will include of course your credit card, debit card, even e-wallets, it's all currency nowadays. And in an international context, of course, it's the difference between the currency we have here and the currency that they have in any of the countries where we're buying and selling products or where we're investing. Hmm. So what role um, or how important would you say um, currencies are um, when it comes to facilitating international trade and economic stability, I think it's important for people to really just, you know, grasp exactly what is currency, what is money, what are their roles. That's why I'm asking these introductory questions, introductory questions. Well, you can't buy or sell things without currency, not easily. Mm. I mean, without currency, without money, you you would have to exchange goods and services through a form of barter. Right, And clearly what that means is I have to have something that you want and you have to have something that I want in order for us to exchange the thing that you have that I want in return for the thing that I, I have that you want. And that means we need to find what we call a mutuality of wants or a mutuality of demand. And that's, that's of course, problematic. So if we have money, um, it means that you can buy something from me and give me money, right? And I can then use that money uh, to buy something from somebody else. And then we don't need to 
um, sort of have a coincidence of of uh, exchange in order to deal with that. And of course, when we're talking about international trade and international um, investment, it really can't be done unless we do it in the form of um, currencies. Yeah. The exchange of one um, type of currency for another type of currency, one form of money for another form of money. And that's what's important um, when we think about um, currency and money in an international context is are people prepared to accept your currency in payment of um, the cost of, let's say you want to buy a product for them, uh, an import, or you want to sell a product to them by way of an export, or you want to invest in their country, either direct investment in a factory or an, uh, a business there, or you want to invest in their financial markets, for example. The question is, are they prepared to accept your currency uh, in return for their own currency? And that's what's important about when we talk about the strength of a currency and the value of a currency. It really is the question of whether other people will accept it, um, whether it's liquid enough, whether there is enough of it, and whether you can easily trade in your currency. And if you have these types of features, then you have a strong currency. It's a useful currency that people are prepared to accept because they respect it and they are uh, they trust it and they feel that uh, it's it's usable in trade. Right. So now that we understand what currency is, what determines the value of this? I, I think that's the important part, right? Because um, currency, like you say, the simplest way to understand it is money. The thing is, um, depending on where that money is from, it has different value. One ringgit is different, has a different value to one dollar. Um, and it depends on which dollar it is. If it's a Singapore dollar or American dollar or an Australian dollar, or mm -hmm. if, and it has a different value to one rupiah or one rupees, what determines these things? How does a currency such as the Malaysian ringgit grow stronger or weaker in the foreign, ex uh, foreign exchange market? In the past, the currency used to be linked. The value of a currency used to be linked by... Uh, uh, to the uh, to the amount of gold or the amount of precious metals, primary gold that um, countries had, right? And you would accumulate this gold because you were a successful economy, basically. <laughs> the reason that we use gold is because it was accepted um, uh, across many countries, most of the countries that you would be trading in. Secondly, it was valuable because it was very scarce and very rare. And the other thing is it never, it didn't really lose its value. It didn't, didn't uh, depreciate, it didn't erode, it didn't um, deteriorate as it would. Um, and so, and also it, it was in relatively fixed quantity. And because it was in relatively fixed quantity, or at least the quantity was was growing at a relatively slow rate, that also helped helped it to keep its value. Right. So different countries had stocks in the past of gold. We call this the gold standard. Hmm. In, and what and the value of their currency was basically determined by the stock of gold that they had. That went on for a, a very long time. Um, right. And uh, in fact, uh, we had it all the way through one form or another, uh, through to the 1970s. Hmm. Um, and instead of linking your currency to gold, uh, it, 
the, the, the transition was made to link the currency to the value of the national economy. And what that basically means is that um, instead of uh, taking your dollars and exchanging them for gold and then using that gold to buy pounds, you would look at the value and that would then determine the value of the dollar to the pound or the dollar to the ringgit or the dollar to um, the yen. Right. Instead of doing it that way, you would look at the value of the dollar in terms of the overall economic size of the United States and the value of the pound in terms of the overall economic size of the United Kingdom and the value of the yen in terms of the overall economic size of Japan and the same for Singapore, Australia, and of course, Malaysia. It's linked to the size of the economy and also right. the strength of the economy and whether the economy is growing or not and whether that growth is sustainable over time or not. And that's what really determines in the long run the value of the currency. So this is very interesting, right? Uh, perhaps this is still, uh, the next question is a bit abstract or philosophical, perhaps. Um, but again, it's it's very fascinating, right? You, you talk about how um, until the 70s or so, you know, <clears throat> currencies were tied to gold. And, and that's where the, the, the phrase gold standard comes from as well. And then now um, that has taken a shift. How did that shift take place? Um, who determines these things? Is it just a, a sort of um, construct by the global, um, by world leaders, um, so, so to speak? Um, people come together and say, this is a better method to determine these things, so on and so forth. Um, how do these things get determined? How do, they, how does, how do you go from um, you know, determining the value of a currency um, against the gold versus then deciding to switch and determining the value of a currency um, against the size of a of a nation's economy. Well, one of the downsides with determining against uh, you know a fixed um, commodity mm. like gold is is because it is fixed, right. and then the the fixed um, commodity that you're storing. Um, either in Fort Knox or in Bank of England or in Bank Nagara, uh, that uh, fixed stock is, is not actually reflecting the real value of your economy. Right. And um, the, be, uh, the real value of the economy is reflected really by the level of trade, the level of investment and the, the level of transactions and the level, therefore, of economic growth that is going on inside your economy. All of these can be then affected by economic policy, and they can also be affected by international uh, and domestic transactions. And what that means is it becomes much more dynamic. If you fix it to, to a fixed stock of a commodity, then it's less dynamic. And the other thing is that you could have an economy, and this is really what happened um, for for many countries, particularly for the United Kingdom, is that the stock of gold wasn't actually reflecting the performance of the economy because the economy was performing much worse than the stock of gold suggested uh, right. it, it should be. And 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 in order to um, to deal with the exchangeability or, or uh, uh, of of your currency, you would have to. Um, uh, then start trading that stock of gold. But actually, it wasn't really reflecting um, the strength of the economy, particularly in the 1950s, at post-war in the 1970s in particular. Um, and as a consequence of that, it wouldn't make any particular sense 
to fix it to a commodity that wasn't actually reflecting the real underlying growth um, of the economy, whether that growth was positive or whether it was contractionary. Over the past few decades, like you said, um, you know, we have moved on from the goal um, to measuring it against the the, uh, the size of the economy. Um, within that framework, um, what factors contribute to the fluctuations in value of currencies over time? Are we um, simply looking at, when you say size of the economy, are we um, looking at, at it from the perspective of GDP? How do we calculate that? What accounts for the fluctuation? Okay, so when we think about fluctuation between currencies, in particular mm-hmm. in terms of the exchange rate, right? Um, we need to think about that in terms of the time period. So right. if we look at it in a very short time period, you know, minute by minute or within a single day, currencies are fluctuating largely because of news that's happening in the market and financial flows in the market. And these financial flows are reacting to different types of news that they're receiving. Hmm. We have to remember that an exchange rate is a comparative um, or a relative measure. So if the news in Singapore is very good and the news in Malaysia is not so good on a single day, for example, people might uh, quickly switch capital and, and investment from Malaysia into Singapore. And then that, of course, will then if they will sell ringgit in order to buy Singapore dollars. The value of the Singapore dollar will go up, the value of the ringgit will go down. Hmm. And so what they're doing on a day-to-day basis is reacting to news. And this news comes along from different sources in different ways. And we say that it's, it, it follows a random walk. In other words, it's not predictable uh, on a, a minute-by-minute or day-to-day basis, despite what people might say, um, because the markets are simply reacting to events as they uh, occur. And that's where we see very short-term fluctuations. Now, if we look at um, uh, exchange rates over a slightly longer period, a matter of weeks or months, or even a matter of months and quarters, um, that then you, 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 you would look at larger flows of capital, but still mainly financial capital flows. And these financial capital flows will be following the highest rate of return. And this is the issue with Malaysia has with the dollar rate. If the if the federal funds rate in America rises and the overnight policy rate here in Malaysia uh, remains the same or or even falls, then we call this an exchange rate dif- uh, sorry, an interest rate differential. Mm. And basically what that means is you get a higher rate of return if you invest your money in America than you would if you kept your money here in Malaysia. In order to invest in America, you have to sell ringgit and buy dollars. That means the ringgit goes down and the dollar uh, will go up. And that will be one of the main reasons why um, you would see a depreciation of the ringgit. One of the one of the reasons. It's not the main reason, but it's one of the reasons. And this could happen if there is an interest rate differential, but it can also happen, as we're seeing at the moment, if there's global economic uncertainty or global political uncertainty. Mm. And what happens then is investors want to go to the place that's safe. And we call this a safe haven uh, process. So they want to go to America because they know it, it's familiar, and it's, it's 
despite what might be going on in the politics of the United States, in terms of investment, it's a pretty safe place to put your money, even in the most turbulent of times. Mm. And so that also has an effect over weeks and months. So we have a combination of different factors which have an effect over um, the sort of medium term. Uh, many of these factors are outside of the control of Malaysia in uh, or the or the domestic um, polit- uh, the domestic uh, policy um, organization like Bank Negara or even fiscal policy. Right. But it's not very much that you can do. But then, in the long term, in the long term, the the exchange rate should reflect the fundamental underlying economic strength of the economy, which, as you mentioned, of course. The main way that we measure that is through GDP growth. Right. But we can also add into that multiple uh, factors which help us to understand the strength of the economy. The level of investment, for example, the level of domestic investment and foreign investment, the dynamism of the economy, the regulatory environment of the economy, the structure of the economy, even the age profile of the economy. And if these are all going in the right directions, which say this is a great place for investment in the longer term, then the in- investment flows will reflect the fundamental underlying strength of the economy. And then over time, you would see that strengthening the exchange rate. Jeffrey, what about things <laughs> like corruption? I- I'm-, I'm wondering how much does that influence how strong or weak a currency becomes? Um, because... You know, over the years, we, we've heard, you know, people, especially politicians um, and, and supporters of particular political parties, they, there's always narratives that they try to spin, right, when it comes to the economy. So there are people who say, you know, the, the, the ringgit is so weak right now um, because of, um, you know, 1MDB, um, the, the whole scandal, the, the corruption of, uh, you know, and, and how tarnished Malaysians, uh, the, the image of Malaysia was uh, on international circuits. And, and the, but on the other hand, you will also see people who, for example, just using this, this one as a one as an example, you have people who are big supporters of, let's say, Najib, who say that, hey, look, the, the ringgit was strength, uh, stronger against the, the US dollar, against the Singapore dollar when Najib was prime minister, despite all the corruption scandals. Um, so, you know, how, how do, you, do you square that circle, right? So how, how would you respond to these uh, kinds of narratives? As an economist, how do you see this? Okay, so these type of uh, features have to be viewed in terms of what we what I've just mentioned in terms of the short term, the medium term, and the long term value right. of the currency. So what we need to look at in the context, for example, of the uh, ringgit dollar rate, mm-hmm. we've all been very concerned about that recently because it has actually been really quite volatile, hasn't it? So right. I mean, at the moment it's about uh, four sixty seven, and earlier in the year it was as low as you know four thirty, even a little bit below that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, this level of volatility is concerning to to some to, to many people. But what we know is that um, exchange rates have positive uh, exchange rates depreciations have a positive side as well as a negative side. And so we have to balance that in the short term. Hmm. But something that's quite important to understand in terms of the ringgit, uh, notwithstanding the recent um, 
relative volatility of the ringgit and the current weakness of the ringgit is that actually over a long time, over a long time period, the ringgit has weakened very, very much indeed. You know, in in the middle of 2011, for example, uh, the ringgit was around um, three ringgits to the dollar. Right. And what we've seen is a significant trend decline, and it's now at 467. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although there have been times when it's <clears throat> it's been, uh, well, actually, there are no times, actually, when it has been better than this three ringgit to the dollar. Mm-hmm. It, has de- it has depreciated consistently over that whole period through multiple um, um, uh, administrations, hasn't it? Right. Now, part of this is, of course, true uh, uh, due to the underlying view that global financial markets have of the risk associated with the Malaysian investment environment. And of course, this risk uh, relates to, well, it relates to multiple factors, amongst which is the level of corruption, the, um, the level of trust, that you can have in the uh, the financial system, in the contracts that you would make, whether the contracts are enforceable or not. And then um, uh, uh, basically in terms of the rule of law in a, in a country. And these things affect the overall risk profile. Another thing that affects the overall risk profile is the fiscal position. So if you have a strong government, which is which is credible, and which is uh, telling not just not just domestic um, voters, but also telling international financial markets that they have a a, a good economic strategy. Then that's going to help in terms of uh, reducing the, uh, the the risk profile of the country and make it, and that will help to make the country more investable. So, under these circumstances, you would expect to see the um, exchange rate strengthen. But it's certainly true that the political risk profile of a country has a a very important impact, not just in the short term, but also in the long term. So when we look at this long-term decline Mm. in the uh, long-term depreciation in the ringgit, then yes, uh, uh, of course, that must be associated to an extent to the political environment and the political risk environment, by which I, I don't mean the change of government. You know, often people have said, oh, if we change the government, it looks risky. Uh, oh, we must vote for the incumbent government so that we have political stability. That's not the issue. Right. Uh, financial markets are, are, are used to changes in governments in democracies all around the world. In fact, it's a, it's a fundamental feature of a democracy that the government should change. So it's not necessarily the fact that the government changes. What we mean when we're talking about the political stability of a, of a country is very much in terms of the governance uh, profile of the country. Right. All right, let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist and a professor at the Malaysian University of Science and Technology. We continue this conversation after these messages. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist and a professor at the Malaysian University of Science and Technology. And we're talking about how currencies become weaker or stronger over time. So, Jeffrey, what does it mean when people say a currency is pegged to another currency? What does that pegging of currency mean? Okay, well, basically, pegging means that uh, you you fix the value of the currency um, uh, in respect of another currency. Right. So, I mean, one example is the one we discussed before, which would be the gold standard. That's actually, a, it's a form of pegging, but it's fixed. Right. Exchange rate. Uh, pegging is really, a, a, it's, it's about managing your exchange rate um, so that it stays around a particular preferred level against other currencies. So we, we've seen this in, in many cases. In the 1970s and 1980s, it was relatively common. Mm. Of course, in the European Union, before they established the euro, um, there was a whole period of um, controlling the exchange rate, pegging the exchange rate against a basket of European currencies as they transitioned into the euro. Right. Um, in countries in Asia, for example, Hong Kong and Singapore, uh, it's not that it's not so much that they peg the exchange rate, but they manage the exchange rate to keep it as stable as possible against the made major ch- uh, trading partners. They have a basket of um, a portfolio of uh, exchange rates, and they try to keep that portfolio as balanced as possible. So pegging is really a question of finding an exchange rate which you feel is the right exchange rate, fundamental exchange rate, for example, or equilibrium exchange rate and then trying to keep your currency at that rate. And how do you do that? Well, you you intervene in the market using various aspects of monetary policy. Mm. So, Jeffrey, recently Tun Dr. Mahade suggested pegging the ringgit to the US dollars. Could you explain what exactly he's trying to do based on his suggestion? I mean, what, what exactly his suggestion means and then what your thoughts are on this particular Well, I mean, suggestion. The, 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 the suggestion to peg against the dollar mm-hmm. would be to find an exchange rate that you felt was the right level. Right. And we have multiple ways of doing that. There are lots of economic theories which tell us that, that the exchange rate should be at this level. Mm. Um, and generally, they, that I mean, we have different terms for it. Sometimes we call it a fundamental equilibrium exchange rate, a fundamental real equilibrium exchange rate. Um, and they, these are, are based on what we mentioned before, which is your view about the underlying strength of the economy and the underlying growth profile of the economy and what that should mean about the value of your currency relative to another currency. And there are lots of mathematical models that we can use to um, to find out what that rate might be. So right. instead of being at 467, some people might say, well, I think that the fundamental equilibrium exchange rate is closer to 4.2 or 4.3. And then you would choose to try to keep the exchange rate at that level, 4.2 and 4.3. That's what basically what pegging would be. And in order to do that, you would have to... Um, intervene in the foreign exchange markets to buy and sell ringgit in order to make sure that you can keep it at that level. Or if the buying and selling of ringgit wasn't um, uh, wasn't keeping it at that level, you would have to uh, change interest rates in order to 
normally you you know let's you raise interest rates in order mm. to attract foreign investors to come in the foreign investors would then buy ringgit and then that would strengthen the value of the ringgit in other words you have to have a much more activist intervention policy in the exchange rate right so very quickly do you mind sh- like you know just putting aside your professor hat putting on your economist hat and telling me what your thoughts are um, on tun dr made's suggestion given uh, the, okay. the 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 volatility of the ringgit right now yes i think it's a remarkably stupid idea and i think that if that were to be introduced it would be extremely damaging mm. um very very damaging indeed firstly because um there is really no particular episode anywhere in the world where pegging of exchange rates has proved successful in anything other than the very short term right secondly in order to peg the exchange rate at any particular level you would have to in the first the first way that you would do that would be to trade um currencies very heavily and the truth of it is the bank nagara has good currency reserves as part of its um policy of uh, um financial sector stability and financial sector prudence but it certainly doesn't have sufficient foreign exchange reserves in order to consistently uh interfere in in the exchange rate uh markets in if in the case that let's say there was a crisis in the ringgit or a run on the ringgit bank nagara would not have the um foreign exchange reserves in order to intervene in that way right. what that means is that bank nagara would then have to use the overnight policy rate much more actively and in terms of the um ringgit dollar rate that means that instead of being at um, 3% the overnight policy rate would be closer to the federal funds rate which is um at uh, 5.5% or something like that now in other words interest rates would be very much higher and then what that means collectively is that you lose control of your monetary policy mm-hmm. you can't set interest rates uh as they need to be set in order to support the domestic economy because you want you would have to set your interest rates in line with the interest rates in uh, in the United States if you're trying to peg the US dollar and what that means is that whatever the federal fund the whatever the federal reserve do with the federal fund rate bank nagara would have to follow that and what that means is you lose complete independence of your monetary policy right. and that's not helpful in terms of uh, um supporting the underlying growth of the domestic economy mm. and it's outside of the mandate actually of um bank nagara right so moving on right um we talk a lot about the us dollar why do why is the the value of the mm-hmm. malaysian ringgit often calculated in relation to the us dollar um why why don't we say you know we wake up today and say the news doesn't say um the value of ringgit is so and so against the the rupee or or or, or the or the yuan or, or whatever it may be yes. right okay. or, or the euro yeah what, what yes, is exactly. it yeah. that's really interesting it's an interesting question and it's mm-hmm. a, i think it's a question that uh bank nagara have been trying to encourage people to ask right because i think it's very important that people look at that i mean the main reason is that it, because the dollar is the global dominant currency hmm. 
and of course most uh of well mo most of the international commodities and the biggest international commodities like oil and gas and then the grains um are, are all um food and all of these and, and international trade and financial flows are generally measured in dollar terms and for that reason people often focus on the um on the ringgit dollar rate right however it makes much more sense to focus on regional currency rates because actually malaysia's biggest um markets for both trade and also investment is not the united states the hmm. uh, biggest markets for trade and investment are asean and china and then other parts of asia right and so if you look at the the um ringgit exchange rate against regional currencies they have been much less volatile than against the dollar and the depreciation against regional currencies has also been less in terms of the ringgit depreciation in, uh, against other currencies it's been less than the ringgit depreciation against the dollar and of course you mentioned the you know the singapore dollar for example mm -hmm. the singapore dollar um, is important to Malaysia because a very large amount of our trade goes through Singapore and financial trade goes through Singapore as, as part of the um, ASEAN process. And of course, in terms of the um, the 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 the, um, the 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 renminbi and uh, the Chinese currency. Again, these are uh, these are indicators that. If you look at trade flows and you look at financial flows and you look at investment flows, these are the these are the uh, exchange rates that matter most. Right. Uh, this next question, I, I'm sure a lot of these questions you could dive into individual podcasts on their own. So you know, but within this this 101 class that we, that we are trying to do right now, right? How does the reliance on the US dollar as a benchmark for the Malaysian ringgit reflect? broader power structures in the global economic system. And I'm wondering, um, you know, in recent, I mean, it's been, um, you know, we've been hearing murmurs and all for a very long time, but recently it's starting to pick up steam, you know, conversations around de-dollarizations, um, mm -hmm. this idea of BRICS becoming stronger, um, you know, this sort of um, um, trade war between US and China, all of this, right? I'm wondering how does all of this, you know, uh, like the, the, this idea of relying on the US dollar as a benchmark, how does it reflect broader power structures within our capitalist economy? And do you see things changing within this um, system? Okay, so the idea of de-dollarization isn't new. We have had these conversations multiple times. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a difference now in the current uh, discussion, which is exactly what you said, it, it's gaining momentum. Right. And that's different to what has happened in the past. I think we have to remember that the, the US dollar has only been um, considered the, the global dominant currency uh, since really since the 1970s, actually. And right. it's very recent. It's only about 50 years. Mm -hmm. You know, by comparison, the British pound, pound sterling, was the global dominant currency for hundreds of years. Right. And in fact, I was telling my students just uh, just this weekend, actually, that um, if you look at the Roman Empire, 
which lasted for several thousand years. <laughs> you know, the Roman denarii was the common currency and the dominant currency for many thousands of years, whereas the US dollar has only been dominant for a few decades. And what this actually reflects is that um, global uh, financial markets and global trade markets will choose the currency which best reflects the business deal that they're doing. Right. And in, the, in, in, in most instances, the dollar has best reflected the, the type of trade that was taking place. But why things are different now is because we have these larger economies, China and India and the, uh, all of the BRICs collectively, and there's much more trade going on um, between these countries and right. with these countries than we have had in the past. And therefore, it doesn't always make sense to um, convert ringgit into dollar and then dollar into uh, Indian rupee uh, mm -hmm. in order to do the trade when you could just do the trade directly from in a bilateral basis. And so as we see these trade flows, it's not so much geopolitical flows, but as we see these trade flows being more interlinked with um uh, individual countries, it makes much more sense to do it without the intermediation of the dollar. Right. And we're seeing a bigger momentum there. We're also seeing uh, some of the main commodities, particularly oil, for example, then this is, of course, a geopolitical issue. So where um, Russia and China are trading in oil, because that trade is actually subject to a sanction, uh, it's difficult for them to do that trade in dollars. So they will do it through bilateral currency exchange. Right. And because that is becoming really, very large, then the market will then determine um, which of the currencies are the ones that people prefer to trade in. If we were to see some major commodities stop using dollars, for example, let's imagine Malaysia and Indonesia were right. to stop pricing um uh, palm oil in dollars and instead chose to price it to the global market in um, local currencies. Right. If we were to see that, then we would see a much more rapid de-dollarization. If we were to see oil, let's imagine the, the countries in the Middle East, the oil producers in the Middle East, mm -hmm. then they decided to change the, the way that um, oil was priced and they could move to any currency. Let's say they moved to the euro, for example out of the dollar and started pricing it into the euro, then that would end dom uh, dollar dominance. But they would only do that if it made sense from a commercial perspective and a business perspective. Right. So another thing I want to ask when trying to you know, understand how currencies work, uh, exchange rates, the value of a currency, are there specific industries or sectors that are more vulnerable to currency volatility? Yes, I mean, obviously, well, vulnerability is is a is a two sided coin, isn't it? So right. if we look at volatility mm. of exchange rates, and we would, you know, obviously, we would, the first thing, the first sector that comes to mind is the financial sector, the you know, the investment sector. Right now, they they make money whether a currency goes up or whether a currency goes down. In fact, they make money out of the volatility of currencies. If currencies were completely um, stable and didn't move at all, 
then they would only make basic basic <laughs> transaction fees. They right. wouldn't make speculation speculative fees. So right. financial markets are, are, are very much affected um, by um, exchange rate volatility. Um, any sectors which are um, very big exporting sectors uh, or any sectors which are very big importing sectors Mm-hmm. will also be affected by exchange rate vol- volatility. So uh, the manufacturing sector, for example, in Malaysia, we've seen that weakening recently. Um, and part of this is not, actually, if the exchange rate depreciates, you would you would uh, imagine that uh, that uh, manufacturing sales would uh, export, manufacturing export sales would rise because the, um, the price would be um, getting cheaper. In export markets, uh, right. overseas, overseas markets, but part of the problem for Malaysian manufacturing exporters is that they have to import many of the components and uh, before they assemble it into an exported product. So it's an intermediate process. So they are affected uh, by um, the uh, the cost of imports, even though they are they benefit from the co- from the um, the lower um, export price. So they are they are very heavily affected by this. Uh, sectors which aren't affected by this are sectors which aren't really involved in international trade. Right. But the education system, uh, sector is very heavily uh, impacted in terms of the costs for our international students. For example, mm. that's that's a, a, a sector uh, just from my own personal knowledge. This right. is uh, I mean this is a sector. That is heavily affected. Tourism, of course, is a sector that is heavily affected by exchange rate volatility, because movements in the exchange rates make um, uh, tourism either more uh, more attractive or less attractive, depending on the, which way the exchange rate is going. On top of that, um, you know, we we have Bank Negara Malaysia here, right? Um, and then each country has their own central bank. What role does the central bank play in managing and stabilizing the value of a country's currency? Help me understand what exactly is Bank Nagara's role in all of this and why often when when in, in discussions, um, you know, whichever government that comes and goes, they often say, this is out of my hand. This particular thing is out of my hand. Um, this is what Bank Nagara said. So we just follow that. Um, I think okay. for many people that can be confusing, thinking that the government has the power to control whatever they 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 deem they want to control. Okay, so in different countries, the central bank has a different role in the foreign exchange markets. Right, and it very much depends upon how important exchange rate volatility is to each country. Mm. So. It, let me give you some examples. In the United Kingdom, the Bank of England has absolutely no role in trying to manage the foreign exchange market. Right. All the Bank of England does is try to make sure that foreign exchange flows, that is the access to currency, is as healthy as possible. And that's rather similar to the role that Bank Nagara plays here in Malaysia. But if we look, for example, at Singapore Hmm. or Hong Kong, because these are much smaller countries in terms of their populations, um, they rely very much more on international trade and international financial flows. 
And therefore, the value of the currency is very much more important in terms of the overall economic performance of Singapore and Hong Kong, particularly in terms of inflation and growth. Right. And so the monetary authorities in Hong Kong and the monetary authority in Singapore will actively intervene in the foreign exchange markets to manage the currency. And in fact, that is their primary monetary policy instrument. So in in order to deliver stable economic uh, growth and uh, price stability, which means low inflation, they they have to manage the exchange rates in those two countries. So if we come back to Malaysia, Bank Negara's mandate is in three components. Right. The first is to ensure price stability, which is to help to keep inflation down. The second is to support stable and sustainable economic growth. Um, and the third is to um, support financial sector stability. Mm. So it doesn't have an exchange rate target as part of its mandate. But that doesn't mean that it's unconcerned about the exchange rate. Of course, it is concerned about the exchange rate. If um, movements in the exchange rate affect the other three parts, the other three components of its mandate, then it needs to do something. But it does that very rarely. And in the current period, over the recent uh, uh, months and years, it, it, it hasn't been, for it has not, for example, been changing the overnight policy rate in order to affect the exchange rate. It hasn't, and that's outside Mm. of its um, scope. But it does involve itself in the foreign exchange markets um, in a a different way, which is very similar to the way in which the Bank of England uh, involves itself in the foreign exchange markets. Bank Nagara involves itself in the foreign exchange markets in order to make sure that people can trade ringgit with a high level of confidence. What that means is anybody who's holding Ringgit and wants to sell Ringgit will always be able to find somebody who will buy the Ringgit from them. And if they can't buy, they can't find somebody in the um, private markets, Bank Nagara will always be there to buy the Ringgit. That means the Ringgit will always have a value. And similarly, if people want to um, sell Ringgit, um, Bank Nagaro will always make sure that there is enough ringgit available in the market to be sold. And so it's inter- it's intervening in the market in terms of um, ensuring market liquidity and ensuring um, uh, free flow of market transactions and to make sure that the foreign exchange market is healthy, that people can rely upon it and that they're confident uh, in the value of the ringgit and they can trust the ringgit as an exchangeable currency right if you find you're holding a currency that no one wants to buy that's devastating for the value of the currency <laughs> and so bank nagara makes sure that anybody holding um holding ringgit is holding a valuable asset and that's that's a really very important part of what they do in the foreign exchange markets so before we wrap this conversation up jeffrey looking ahead what challenges do you foresee the malaysian ringgit facing and how do we overcome these challenges again you know, we could do an entire show, 10 different shows on this, but just give us something to think about. What questions should we be asking um, as we monitor um, things as the weeks and months and years go by? 
I think that we one of the challenges for the ringgit is to look at this long-term depreciation. Uh, as you know, as I mentioned, you know, as as far back as 2011, it mm-hmm. was at three three ringgit to the dollar. Now it's at four sixty-seven. And to look at the long-term um, trend and to ask the question, what has caused that? Right. And then to try to introduce policies which will mitigate that. And uh, these are structural issues. Actually, these are long-term structural issues, and they're to do. Well, of course, with economic growth and development, but also the investment environment and the policy environment in Malaysia. And these are um, hard questions to answer, but they have to be addressed because it's a long term trend. Hmm. In terms of the current level, we know we're 467. Right. Uh, one of the challenges is to um, resist the market, the, the siren voices of the market. Um, to try to encourage the government or Bank Nagara to interfere in the foreign exchange markets because people are concerned that at 467 or 470 or so on that it's too high or or it might go it might uh, worsen. In the so in, in the short term we need to resist that. The, the 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 position is clear and we have to I think uh, make it even clearer that the exchange rate must. Um, be allowed to move freely and must be traded freely uh, so that it acts as an automatic stabilizer in, and it moves to the level that is necessary for the economy um, to, to be sustainable in the long term. So we have to resist that temptation of trying to uh, encourage the government or encourage Bank Nagara to interfere. So these are short-term and long-term challenges. Jeffrey? Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. That was Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist and a professor at the Malaysian University of Science and Technology. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just have to look up Today I Learned Podcast. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.